Horrifying living conditions in Newfoundland and Labrador's for-profit shelter system pushes people into tent cities. Ontario Children's Aid Societies are seeing more and more kids who are being put into care because their families don't have supports. The feds call a meeting to talk about Alberta's plan to leave the Canada Pension Plan. Workers win big in auto sector strike and the UN logs a record number of displaced people worldwide. Good morning. It's Thursday, October 26th. I'm Nora and here are your headlines. We start today in Newfoundland and Labrador, and a story of the state of transitional housing in that province. Karen Peddel used to live across the street from the legislative building. She found that living in a tent was a safer and more suitable living space than when she had lived in the province's shelter system. On Wednesday, she agreed to leave the tent city after being promised, quote, a clear pathway to stable housing, reports the Canadian press. But it took just a few days for her to land back in the for-profit shelter system. She stayed in a privately owned home that sounds like a nightmare. Petal describes the conditions, needles under the sink, holes in the heater and walls and rats. Another tenant shows his units to journalists as well. Burners on the stove don't work and the thermostat is sealed off from being able to be touched even though the building gets very cold. And one of the drawers in his kitchen has only rodent droppings and a naloxone kit. Walls have been patched with drywood sheets, mold is in the bathroom, and walls, curtains, and carpets are all stained. Up to four people can live in this basement apartment and none of the bedroom doors actually lock. The Canadian press reports that while media was outside of the facility, two officers questioned Pedal inside and cleaners arrived at the facility. The report says that Newfoundland and Labrador is the only province to contract private landlords to house people when shelters are too full, though it says that they couldn't get a clear answer from whether or not Ontario does this, which doesn't make too much sense to me because it's well known that people are regularly housed in hotels there, which are, of course, privately owned and operate on a for-profit basis. And actually, that's also the case in other provinces too. So it'd be interesting to know what the Canadian press means by there being no other provinces that use private for-profit housing spaces when many of them do use hotels, though this isn't explained in the article. Anyway, last year, the province spent $5 million on for-profit shelters and hotels. It's about the same amount it spends on not-for-profit shelters. Income supports in Newfoundland and Labrador are particularly bad. Someone who qualifies for income support only receives $125 per month. In Nova Scotia, the number is at least $380 a month, and in New Brunswick, it's at least $637. Some shelters serve food, often frozen dinners or pogos, says Petal, and she says that she can't hold down a job because she's shuffled from facility and facility so much she doesn't have a stable address something that employers expect. The province's housing corporation assured the Canadian press that the facility has been inspected. A woman who said that she was the landlord refused to be quoted for the article. Now to Ontario, with a variation on the same theme of a story. From Bob Beckin at CBC Windsor comes a piece called, quote, Why Some Ontario Children and Youth with Complex Special Needs Are Living in Hotels, unquote. The article stems from a radio interview from the executive director of the Windsor-Essex Children's Aid Society. He said that there is a province-wide crisis in trying to get children with complex needs the support that they need. 
parents and caregivers who fight to keep their children in the communities that they live in bump up against, quote, a lack of acute and intense resources to support them, unquote. And sometimes the parents or caregivers reach a point where they give up their children to the care of children's aid. In his region, CEO Derek Driar says that his agency can see about 10 children and youth in care who should instead be in a system that supports complex physical and mental health needs. And sometimes the children who are in the care of children's aid are placed in hotels or living in the building where they receive services. Some of the kids are able to get themselves up and off to school or to work or whatever by themselves, but others are not able to. While the region has a shortage of foster parents, Duriar says that sometimes foster parents and foster placements are not ideal. Often, they see kids who are in the children's aid system who are there because there aren't supports for the services they need, and foster parents don't help in that situation. Currently, there are fewer kids in the province's care system than ever, which is good news, but the flip side of that is that the kids who are in care have needs that are increasingly difficult for the system to manage. The government of Ontario is not doing enough at all to ensure the kids who are placed in care because their families lack services are getting the services that they need. Now, one thing that this article does not mention is how the Liberals are fighting to expand medical assistance in dying to youth. Where would the youth who end up in care of the state because they have complex medical needs and are living in hotels, where do they fall into expanded MAID? How vulnerable are they going to be to possibly being given the option to end their lives. Now to federal news and something that maybe you've seen but it's just too boring, your eyes glazed over and you just skipped past. It's still kind of important. (laughs) Alberta's Premier Daniel Smith has a plan to remove Alberta from the Canada Pension Plan and set up its own fund. The Ontario Finance Minister this week responded to this plan saying that this decision could seriously harm the stability of the CPP. Finance Minister Peter Bethlenfalvy asked Christian Freeland to organize a meeting for the finance ministers all over Canada to discuss Alberta's plans. Freeland agreed to the meeting in a matter of hours. Though she said Alberta has, quote-unquote, the right to leave the CPP, she wants to make sure that leaving the program will be done, quote, based on facts, unquote. Hmm, she must have never heard of Danielle Smith before. Because the truth-telling capacities of Madam Smith are not super strong. Phil Tsikouris from CP24 reports that Smith claims, through a third-party report, that Alberta will be owed more than half of the fund's assets, which is uh, hilarious. The Canada Pension Plan Investment Board estimates that Alberta would be entitled to about 16% of the fund's assets. Now to the United States, where there is big news for auto workers. After 41 days on strike, the union announced a tentative agreement with Ford. The agreement goes to the members now for a ratification vote. The workers have won a 25% pay increase over 4.5 years. They will also get a $5,000 ratification bonus. These details are being reported by the Detroit Free Press and were leaked to them quietly by an anonymous source last night. The wage increase is the highest that workers have received in the last 22 years. They also increased the starting wage rate by 68%, giving some of the lowest paid workers an immediate boost in wages of 85%. The agreement also promises to bring back the cost of living increases, which were killed during the 2008 recession. 
And it will kill tiered wages among workers and give workers the right to strike over plant closures. What's amazing about the reporting from the Detroit Free Press is that they seek out striking workers to give their opinions on the proposed agreement. They talked to four different people about what they thought of the tentative agreement, and they all have their opinions, which are given a lot of airspace in the article. I don't think I've ever seen such in-depth reporting of a regular labor action in Canada. Of course, this is a historic action, but it's still auto workers on strike. You know, the reporting that I've seen on the port workers on strike or our own auto workers as they face strike has not even come close to what is published in the Detroit Free Press. And finally, news from Al Jazeera, though before I get to it, I just want to note that Gaza Bureau Chief for Al Jazeera Arabic, Wael Daoudou, lost members of his close family in a bombing by Israeli forces. His wife, his children, and a grandchild, all killed in an Israeli attack. One reporter broke down crying on air as he told the story, and Al Jazeera has reported that the news agency condemns the violence that has taken Daoudou's family. Dahdu moved his family to southern Gaza, where Israel told people to go if they wanted safety. It's devastating and horrible, and it's easy to lose words in these moments other than to say resistance to occupation, whether it's in a journalist's reporting or a child's play or a baker's early morning bread or the care given to a friend. None of this is in vain. Their lives were not in vain, and the lives of those who will die as Israel continues to bomb Gaza their lives won't be in vain either, as they lived resistance and they showed the world, in the words of poet Refif Ziada, life. They teach life. So, from the news from Al Jazeera, there are a record number of people who are displaced currently on the planet since the data was first tracked in 1975. The United Nations says that 114 million people have been displaced worldwide, something that, quote, speaks to the international community's failure to solve conflicts, unquote. That number is up another 5.6 million people from last year. The biggest sources of displacement were conflicts in Ukraine, Sudan, Myanmar, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Displacement was also caused by humanitarian problems in Afghanistan and natural disasters in Somalia. By mid-year, 11 million Ukrainians had fled Russia's invasion and 3 million Sudanese have fled civil war in Sudan. And of course, Palestinians are also forced to flee their homes, including 1.4 million, more than half the entire population of Gaza. Syria has the highest number of refugees, 6.5 million people who are scattered across 130 different countries, and 6.7 million people who are internally displaced. That's the second largest population of internally displaced people in the world. The largest population of internally displaced people live in Colombia at 6.9 million people. Those are your headlines for Thursday, October 26th. I'm Nora. You're listening to this podcast at sandyandnora.com on the Real News Network podcast feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope you have a wonderful Thursday.